Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Dean Murray. Uh, please remain standing with me. Uh, it's my privilege to share with you the scripture for this morning's message, which comes to us from 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality one to another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is always great to see you. We are always glad, too, that you have joined us in worship. My name is Dave Hahn. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege this morning to be able to open God's Word with and for you. If you have gone to see a movie in a theater lately, you know that there is a growing discrepancy in time between when the theater says the movie will begin and when that movie actually starts. The lights may go down at the movie's start time, but you'll need to endure a good 20 to 25 minutes of commercials and movie trailers before you actually see one frame of that movie. Now, we should know better by now, and it continues seemingly to get longer, but most of us still get to the movie on time, and we quiet down when the lights go dark because we have adjusted our understanding of what it means that something has begun. If you are a fan of the Marvel superhero movies, you know that the end of those movies is not really the end. You know that as a ploy to get you to stick around through the credits, that's my theory, as a ploy to get you to stick around through the credits, Marvel tags on a few minutes of extra film to kind of share an extra little plot point or to share a, a preview of an upcoming Marvel movie. And most people know that and they stick around for it so much so that people are beginning to stick around for movies that are not Marvel movies thinking maybe they're going to show something else after everything is over. Thereby, we have adjusted our understanding of what it means that something has ended. In certain scenarios, the idea of a beginning and an end is somewhat relative and putting too fine of a point on it can lead to frustration and some unmet expectations. It's kind of like the, are we there yet conversations that kids have with their parents on a road trip, right? Are we there yet? Almost. Are we there yet? Almost. And frustration continues to grow because we haven't actually arrived. How much greater then, my friends, is the potential for misunderstanding and for frustration and for confusion when finite beings like you and me seek to understand an infinite God. There are over 450 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, who he would be, what he would do, when he would come, 
and where. And still, if you've noticed, almost everyone missed him. Almost everyone missed him. The apostles, including the author of today's passage, Peter, heard multiple times from Jesus himself where he was headed, what would happen when he got there, who would be responsible for these occurrences, and the ultimate outcome. And yet, each one of them, to a person, was despondent as the events unfolded exactly as Jesus said they would. He told them over and over and over and over again. The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, and he will be handed over to the chief priests, and he will be crucified. But on three days later, he will rise again. And that's exactly how it happened. And yet, at his crucifixion, at his arrest, they were despondent. But are we any better? No, we're not any better When it comes specifically to how this world is going to meet its end, we like to think that we know what's coming, when it's coming, how it is coming, and where. But is it possible that you and I are wrong about that too? What if, what if having a pinpoint understanding of the specific details that God has provided in Scripture is not the point at all? What if it's not about guessing the when and the where and the how? What if God is after something else entirely by giving us those details and a glimpse into the future of this world and the world to come? In looking at today's passage, my friends, I think an argument can be made that God does want something from us in showing us those things, but perhaps it is not what we think it is. Let's look again at verse 7 which reads, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So in verse 7, we find a what and we find a why. Several what's and a why. In other words, we find indicatives and we find imperatives. Now, we have talked about those two words a lot, last week included, because we are trying to give you eyes that see that behind every command is a why that points you to God in Christ doing that very thing for you and in you. No command is given outside of God saying, I have provided it to you already in the person of my Son. You are not left to your own devices to figure out how to obey that command. Because as Jonathan reminded us last week, imperatives, divorce of indicatives, lead to impossibilities. We can't do it. Imperatives are usually a what or a command for us to follow, whereas indicatives are usually about who God is in us, what he has done, and or why we are to do the things that we are commanded to do. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers is the imperative in this verse, right? It's a command. But the end of all things is at hand is the indicative. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why? The end of all things is at hand. 
So in the command that Peter gives us in verse 7, he's really continuing a train of thought from verses 1 through 6 that Jonathan talked about last week. But here at the beginning of verse 7, he starts with a new and powerful indicative. The end of all things is at hand. That will grab your attention. That is a loaded phrase. And because it grabs our attention, and because it's a loaded phrase, we're going to spend some time breaking that phrase down a little bit. So let's begin by looking at the first half of the phrase, which says, the end of all things. We, my friends, have been made by an eternal God as everlasting beings. Made by an eternal God as everlasting beings. To be eternal as God is, is to have no end and to have no beginning. Whereas to be everlasting as we are is also to have no end, but the difference is is that we do have a beginning as ordained by our eternal God. Do you understand? Only God is eternal. Only God is eternal. And just as he determines who or what came to be and comes to be, he also determines who or what is everlasting or will come to an end. In the beginning, God. That is how the Bible begins in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God is the very first sentence in the Gospel of John. So in both cases, we have a beginning. Well, the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, the beginning of everything. Everything that we know and see and everything we don't know and see. This is the best way that finite creatures like you and me can understand an infinite God who sits outside of time but has also chosen to step into the time that he has created. The reality of God's created order is that everything has a beginning and everything has an end. You and I included, and we live our lives in stark view of that reality. However, the Bible has words in it like foreknew and predestined, which implies that there is something outside of time, someone outside of time. But it only uses those words when it is speaking of God himself, because again, only he is eternal. Only he has the power to predestine and to foreknow. Before anything came to be, my friends, God was. And he foreknew and he predestined how everything would come to be before it actually did. And he also foreknew and predestined how and when those things would end. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 29. Jesus said this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. There are 400 billion or so birds on this planet. And there are currently about 7.2 billion people, most of whom, present company excluded, have around 100,000 hairs on their head. And God knows each of those 400 billion birds. 
when they came to be and when they fall. And he knows every hair upon your head and my head. In my case, it's easier. But he knows each one of those hairs when they came to be and when they fall away. God determines when the smallest and most insignificant of things come into being, and he determines when those same things fall. How much more then, this is the point, for you and I, the most significant of his creation. We are not hairs upon a head, and we are not one of 400 billion birds. You and I were created in his image uniquely. And by God's decree, you and I were knit together in our mother's womb as physical beings and as spiritual beings. And approximately nine months later, we were born into this world physically speaking. We were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And one day, according to God's decree, our physical life will end. But our spirits, whether alive in Him or dead in sin, will carry on for eternity. Have you ever thought about that? That while your physical lives will end, your spirit, alive in Christ or dead in sin, will carry on for eternity. If we have been born again through faith in Christ, our living spirit will go to be with God for all eternity, either in heaven itself or in the new heaven and the new earth that he ushers in at his return. But if we have rejected Christ, our spirit will be eternally separated from God in hell. So you and I have never ever met, nor has this world ever seen, a mortal being. Everyone who has been born of man has been created in the image of God who is eternal. And while our physical life passes away, our spirits carry on into eternity, either in heaven or in hell. So when Peter says the end of all things, he is referring to this world as we now know it. At the end of all things, our lives as we know them will cease to be, and we will intersect with eternity into a new age, either with God or separated from Him. At the end of all things, God's plan of redemption will be complete. Christ will return. The final judgment will come, and all that will remain is His rightful rule over a new heaven and a new earth. And according to Peter, that end is coming soon. Now, some of you may believe that the world as we know it will end in your lifetime, our lifetime, and you would not be alone in having such an opinion. The death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ ushered in the beginning of what Peter calls the end of all things. And every generation since Jesus' first coming has thought that they would be the ones to see his second coming. But so far, every generation has been wrong. So far, every generation has been wrong, right? And that's okay, because honestly, there is only one generation that is going to be right about the exact time and place and manner in which Christ returns, and it is not going to be because they were better or smarter than everyone else. It is going to be because they happen to be alive when he returns. 
My friends, in view of an eternal God, the idea of something being at hand or being soon is incredibly relative. Remember that according to the book of James, no matter how long we live, 90 years, 100 years, whatever, even back Old Testament, 800, 900 years old, no matter how long we live, our lives are a mist or a vapor in view of eternity. And according to the Psalms and according to Peter himself in his second letter, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We've all heard that, right? So let's follow that familiar metaphor to its logical end. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Let's follow that to its logical end. If one day is as a thousand years to God, and Jesus died, rose again, and ascended 2,000 years ago, in God's view, he has only been gone for two days. And if he returns within the next 1,000 years, he'll only have been gone for three days. And I think we can all agree that two or three days qualifies as soon or at hand. So here's the point of all that. We are always one day in this world closer to Christ's promise return. And once he returns, the ability to receive him by faith is no more. Is no more. And his good and his right judgment of the living and the dead has come. So as ambassadors of Christ, as priests in his kingdom, and as ministers of his reconciliation, we need to take seriously his return, to take seriously the implications for we who do believe and for those who do not, and we need to pray. That's what Peter's getting at. We need to pray in view of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Now, this is the second time in Peter's first letter that he has shown real concern for the prayer lives of his readers. The first time was in chapter 3, verse 7, three, four weeks ago, uh, in reference to how a husband treats his wife and how his treatment of his wife can hinder his prayers. But why is there all of this concern? Why the concern in chapter 3 and why the concern today? It is because Peter knows that communing with God through prayer is critical in the life of every believer. Communing with God is critical to the life of every believer. So if you are convinced that Jesus is coming back within your own lifetime, and you might be right, somebody is going to be, one of the best things that you can do with that personal conviction is pray. Pray. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Pray that you and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would continue to trust in and depend on Jesus, even when it's hard to do so. Pray that God would both find the lost and give life to the dead, and pray that God would use you as he strengthens and as he encourages and as he saves. My friends, as both finite and everlasting beings, if our prayers are to be effective, our eyes and hearts and minds need to be firmly on Jesus. 
and not distracted by the kinds of fleshly and worldly desires or concerns that Peter warned us about earlier in chapter 4. We need to think as God thinks, not as men think. We need to view His coming the way that God views it, not the way that men view it. Because, friends, this life is eventually going to end for all of us. But eternity lies ahead for both believers and unbelievers. So we need to be serious about the way that we live, and we need to be serious about the prayers that we pray. Now, in view of the end of all things, Peter does not stop with prayer. In verses 8 through 11, Peter shares one more critical command and implication regarding the end of this age. And he knew how important this command was because he heard it directly from Jesus at the Last Supper, just hours, by the way, before he himself betrayed Jesus three times. And the command is this, we are to love one another. And the word for love, as used in this context, is the word agape, a word that is used to describe the way in which God loves. Look again at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter puts love for one another above all other commands here. And then he puts some flesh around the command in the verses that follow by giving practical ways that we are able to love one another and by helping us understand who the one another's he's referring to are. Now, of course, Peter is assuming that his readers will not have forgotten the previous three chapters. Remember, these are letters that are read in full. They're not read in eight or nine verse sections the way that we handle it, right? So he'll assume that they haven't forgotten what they heard five minutes ago, where he reminded us that we have been given the ultimate picture and ultimate definition of love in the cross of Christ in Matthew 15, verse 13, speaking of the way in which he would die, Jesus said this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John, the apostle John, said something similar in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How do we know what love is? Well, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So let me ask you this. Does your understanding and your definition of love line up with what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ? Is that how you define love? Or is it really more of a worldly fairy tale romance novel kind of thing? Because when the Bible speaks of love, it is depicted in and through the innocent dying on behalf of the guilty. It is defined through sacrifice and service unto those who mistreat you. Agape love is primarily expressed in action, not necessarily words or emotion. So, who here had 1 Corinthians 13 read at their wedding. Anybody? Raise your hands. Okay, Sheila and I did, and I think some of you did too, but maybe you don't remember. 
That's how impactful it was for you? <laughs> so while it took me a little bit to realize this, those verses, as often as we hear them at weddings and in other places, are really not talking about love apart from God, as though love is its own entity. Those verses are talking about God himself. Love is patient. Love is kind, right? I think most of us are familiar with these verses enough to know, but I want you to listen to these verses as I read them now while taking note of the noun change that I make, okay? Listen to these verses as I read them, but pay attention to the noun change that I make. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no records of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. These, my friends, are the characteristics of God and the characteristics of love because according to 1 John 4, God is love. And without an understanding of what love is, or better yet, who love is, and without a deep trust and understanding of the love of God flowing to us and through us, we simply cannot love as we have been called to. We might call it love, but it's something else. So having said that, let's take a little bit of a longer look at some of the practical ways that Peter gives us, and really the ways that we see 1 Corinthians 13 and the love of God working itself out through you and I as the church. Beginning in verse 9 of today's passage, actually I'll go back to 8, but we'll get to 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I think verse 9 can be and maybe has been misunderstood because, really, of how our culture defines the word hospitality, because of how we define hospitality. Is it fair to say, my friends, that we tend to think as a culture of hospitality as something that's primarily meant for women and for extroverts? That's, that's who hospitality is for, women and extroverts. It's not necessarily applicable to every Christian, right? My friends, we have to get past believing that only those with the gift of hospitality are called to be hospitable. We have to get past that. Or that unless we just love throwing parties and entertaining people and we've got lots of money and we have a big house with lots of space, we simply can't be hospitable. My friends, that is not how Scripture talks about hospitality at all. So we have to move past our definition of it. The Greek word for hospitality, phylloxenia, means, and it's broken down in this way, two Greek words, philo meaning love, and xenia meaning stranger. Philoxenia. That's the word for hospitality. So, 
To be hospitable is to treat strangers as though they are already your friends. To be hospitable is to treat strangers as though they are already your friends. To so welcome them into your life and home that they cease being strangers and they become friends. And then, when faith in Christ comes, they become family. That's how hospitality works, and that's the purpose of it. Hospitality, my friends, requires vulnerability, and it requires generosity with what you do have, not with what you don't. And it requires a deep recognition that all you have, however much that is, is not your own. So, it is good, and it is right, and it is expected that you would give it away to others and not expect anything in return. That's what the Bible means when it's talking about hospitality. But in order for us to get there, we must recognize that we ourselves were once strangers and enemies of God. But we have become children of God and friends of God in Christ, which enables us then to impart to others what has been imparted to us and to do so cheerfully. In using the term one another in both verses 8 and 9, Peter is making a specific reference, certainly a specific reference, to other believers. But agape love expressed in part through hospitality does not end with other believers. Friends, the vertical love that you and I know, the love that came from God to us, must flow horizontally, meaning from us unto others, whoever it is that God puts in front of us. That's how that works. Continuing in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So hospitality is one way in which we can love one another, but in verses 10 and 11, we find yet another way. We can love others by serving them with the gifts that we have been given. We have talked multiple times in this church about service and about spiritual gifts before, so I'm not going to go too deep into the dynamics of those things right now, except to reiterate what Scripture lays out for us in these two verses. According to verses 10 and 11, by God's grace, we have all been given gifts, each of us. As each has received a gift, that's everyone. Whether they be physical gifts whether they be monetary and financial gifts, or most importantly, if we are in Christ, spiritual gifts. And we have all been given those gifts, not for our sake, but for the sake of others. Though we are certainly benefactors of the gifts that we have been given, those gifts are meant to flow to us and then through us. And these verses remind us that God has not only supplied us with these gifts of his grace, but he has also supplied us with the opportunities to share those gifts. There are always opportunities to share what you have been given, physically, financially, or spiritually with others. And he has also supplied us with the strength needed to use those gifts in service to others. That's what the Bible says. 
He has given those gifts. He has given opportunities to share those gifts. And he has given us the strength that we need to use them. And why has he done so? Well, to bring him glory. So we are not to live as owners of what we have been given, but as stewards of it as vessels through which his blessings flow, always considering how God might use us to give away what we have been given by him in service to both friends and strangers. That's how we are able to love one another. And what happens when we show that kind of love to others? Well, look again at the second half of verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment, he said it was twofold, if you remember. He said it was to love God with everything within us. And he said the second is like it, and that is to love others as we love ourselves. As we already love love ourselves is what's implied there. And Christian, our ability to do so flows from the fact that he first loved us. As we say quite often, God's love for us was perfectly demonstrated in his son's death on the cross where our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. It was is and always will be God's love that covers over and forgives sin. And we have been given his love perfectly in his son. So Disciples Church, in Christ we are loved and we are forgiven so that we might love and forgive others. So may we as a church be known for the reflection of God's love and forgiveness that is seen in us and reject the temptation that we so often have to condemn. Jesus said that it is through loving one another and forgiving one another that mankind will know that we are his disciples, not in and through our judgment of them. So my friends, the greatest story ever told is unfolding before us, and our God is both the author and the star. But we are near its end, at least from an eternal point of view. And God's word tells us that the beginning and the end of all things is from him, for him, and because of him. Which means that this life and all its gifts are not about you, and they're not about me. And the next life for those of us who are in Christ, it's not about you or me either. It is all about Jesus, and it is all about his glory. So if your view of heaven is nothing more than some idealized version of your life here on earth with you at the center, rather than centered around Jesus Christ and his glory, you are missing the point and you will be disappointed. your view of heaven is some idealized version of your life here on earth, and you're the benefactor, you're the star, you're going to be disappointed. The most awesome scenery or set of circumstances that you and I can imagine cannot 
does not and will not compare to looking into the face of Christ our Savior for all of eternity. Being with Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. Being with Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. Is that why you're looking forward to going? And conversely, what makes hell hell is the absence of Jesus, the absence of the presence of God in Christ. Do you realize, my friends, that only one person born into this world knows what it means to be separated from the presence of God and that no one else ever has or ever will? Jesus Christ, in becoming sin for us on the cross, saw the Father turn his face away from him. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ experienced hell so that you and I would never have to. He alone experienced what it means to not know the intimate presence of God so that you and I would never know what it means to not experience his presence. For everyone else born of man, God was and is ever-present and has made himself known. And he is present and has made himself known through his creation, through his common grace unto the righteous and the wicked. Think of all the things that you enjoy on a day-to-day basis. And he has made himself present and known through the indwelling of we, his people. But in hell, God and all his graces are absent, and they are absent forever. We cannot begin, truly cannot begin to imagine its horror because we have never even tasted it here on earth. So if you do not know or love Jesus, would you seriously consider what lays ahead for you and then reconsider? Consider what it is that lays ahead for you and then reconsider. Ask him to give you the faith to believe and for a new life that can only be found in him. I and we are going to pray for you to that end today. Let me close with one more question for all of you. If you knew for certain that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would you live today? If you knew for certain that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would you live today? How would your life be different? How would you relate differently to God himself? How would your interactions with your brothers and sisters in Christ be different? How would your interactions with the lost and the spiritually dead be different? How would the content and the quantity of your prayers be different? How would your understanding and the use of the gifts that God has given you be different? Disciples Church, as followers of Jesus Christ, left on this earth to be priests and ambassadors, ministers and salt and light in his kingdom, we must live with a certain sense of seriousness, sobriety, and urgency because in view of eternity, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. In view of eternity, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. So let's pray like it's true. Let's love one another like it's true and serve God and others like it's true. And through it all, 
bring glory to God through Jesus Christ our Lord until it actually is true. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you gave your Son Jesus Christ to us that he might give his life for us and live his life through us that we would proclaim his gospel and reflect his love here on earth until he returns. May we not live lives that are so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good, nor lives that are so earthly minded that we, are no, that we no longer recognize heaven as our eternal home. Father, you have set eternity before us, and by your grace you have given us gifts gifts that we are to use to call to others so that their eternity might be with you rather than tragically and eternally separated from you. Remind us that we were once strangers and enemies but are so no longer and then extend invitations to the lost to come to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for forgiveness and for life and for a lasting identity and ultimately an everlasting family. Father, we pray for those among us who have not believed and do not love Jesus as Lord. Father, would you give them faith to believe, show them the unmatched beauty of Jesus, and then call, out to, call them out of their tombs into your life-giving presence. Everything, Lord, is by you, from you, and for you, and nothing is of greater significance than our knowledge, love, and worship of you. So would you be glorified in and through us today and always. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.